Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. As the saying goes, if you couldn't pick where you were going to be born on Earth, but you could pick when, this really is the best time. As screwed up as things seem to be, They're less screwed up than ever. More of us have time to ponder our place in the cosmos than ever before in history. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, make sure to check my social media handles and Stitcher Twitter for when to call us. And as always, send us your questions and comments to askbillnye.com. And I'm joined once again. I'm delighted. I'm thrilled. I'm I'm overjoyed. You're at least satisfied. I'm yeah, <laughs> and more so to be joined by science writer, editor. Dear friend, Corey S. Powell, greetings, Corey. Hello, Bill. You know, it's it's always good to be here, but today's episode is a special one because we're celebrating a, an unusual, perhaps a, a unique 30th birthday. A birthday? An orbit around the sun? A yes. billion kilometers? Special birthday episode. For whom? Uh, of the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh! Yes. Itself. Launched aboard the space shuttle on April, in April of 1990. So, back uh, in the 20th century. Back in the 20th century. So happy birthday, you big 12-ton hunk of glass and metal. Uh, well, that's it's romantic. It is romantic. It's beautiful. But it's still up there working. Uh, which is amazing. And here to talk about it. And it, I guess to celebrate it, the famed telescope is uh, astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, the senior project scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope, Dr. Jennifer Weissman. (laughs) Greetings. So what does it mean to be the senior project scientist? What is that? Do you get to call the shots? Well, not exactly. So there are hundreds of people who support the Hubble Space Telescope mission. And they work for you. Not exactly. They work for you, the taxpayers, um, but we have engineers, scientists, managers, uh, public relations folks, all kinds of people who work together to make Hubble work. 
But I work with a small team of scientists at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center called the Project Science Team. And we're just basically the the science eyes trying to make sure that the mission is being as scientifically productive as possible. And uh, Goddard Space Flight Center is in Greenbelt, Maryland? That's right. Mm -hmm. Just north of Washington. And uh, it's huge. Goddard Space Flight Center has thousands of people working on all kinds of missions related to studying space and studying Earth from a scientific perspective. So uh, we as a center manage and are preparing dozens of satellites and probes uh, to study everything from the sun, heliophysics, to uh, distant space, astrophysics, and planetary science, and Earth science, looking back at our own planet. So I just remind everybody, uh, uh, whether you're from the U.S. or not, just people think of the space program, they think of NASA, they think of Houston. That's right. Where they once had a problem, and uh, or where a problem was uh, reported, or Florida, where launches are launched, or perhaps some people, Jet Propulsion Lab and California someplace. In Pasadena. Yeah, but the huge, uh, the Hubble, which is the uh, among the most successful missions ever flown, is run out of Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. That's right. So Hubble, before it was launched, was developed in large part at Marshall Space Flight Center, and then uh, from in Alabama, launch, Huntsville. That's right. And from launch onward, it's been operated from Goddard Space Flight Center, and we also work with an institute in Baltimore uh, to, that actually runs the much of the daily science operations of the mission, and that's called the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. So lots of folks working together to make this mission work. And yes, there are different different aspects of NASA's mission, um, including, of course, the astronaut program, as you just mentioned, very exciting, and our, our goals of sending humans to the moon and, and Mars and so forth, and the science part of NASA, uh, which I'm more involved with. And these are not separate. And I think the Hubble Space Telescope mission is a great example of how the astronaut program and the science program with NASA has all come together in very dramatic ways. And uh, made some amazing discoveries. Absolutely. Changing the subject again briefly to me. Uh, I got another kid's book coming out, The Great Big World of Science. And uh, we have a whole section on the Hubble Space Telescope. And the premise, what I started with, is the idea that the Hubble Space Telescope is a time machine. Absolutely. It's a wonderful time machine. So tell us about that. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, of course... Everybody, most people realize that when you look out in space, if you think about it a bit, you know you're looking back in time. Because, of course, it takes time for anything we're looking at to, uh, to, for the light to travel to us. It's just that for nearby things, that time is kind of negligible. But when you're looking across vast distances of space, it takes more time for that light to get to you. And so you're seeing things as they were in the past, when that light first began its journey. And Hubble, being such a sensitive uh, telescope, is able to see not only distant stars in our own galaxy, but other galaxies, and not only what we might call, quote-unquote, nearby galaxies, which for us might be a few million light years away, but we're also seeing... A few million light years. <laughs> That's right. So a few million light years means you're seeing them a few million years in the past. That's right. It's taken a few million years for the light from that galaxy to to make its journey to, through space to get to us. Okay, so this is nearby. 
That's nearby. I mean, even the Andromeda galaxy is about two million light years away. So, so everything uh, is kind of like a a portal to the past through astronomy. But now we are actually seeing galaxies that are billions of light years away, and this is wonderful for uh, because we can actually look at galaxies that are billions of light years away, both in space and back in time and compare them to galaxies closer to us in space and time, and even to our own Milky Way, and see if galaxies have changed over cosmic time. So you're, you're yes. actually looking back most of the way to the time of the Big Bang? Yes, we are. So, And how do you yeah. know that? How do we know that uh, we are looking most of the way back yeah, yeah. toward the beginning of time? Well, uh, one of the, the most interesting and challenging Uh, jobs for astronomers is to try to measure distances to distant objects. So by measuring very carefully the distances to some of these galaxies, we can uh, confirm how far away they are and, and therefore how far back in time we are looking. And from kind of many different ways of measuring this, there's a, a consensus that our universe, at least the one we're in, seem to have a dramatic beginning about 13.8 billion years ago. And we're seeing galaxies back within that first 0.8 of the 13.8 billion year history of the universe right now. So that's that's infancy, or at least adolescence of some of these galaxies. And this gets into the, this, the two questions that we've all asked. Uh, the, <clears throat> the second one being, are we alone in the universe? Mm-hmm. But the first one for me is, where did we all come from? Yes. Yeah, where did all of this come where from? Where did everything come from? And is it even no. meaningful to ask? And another thing I love to mess with, and then we'll, we'll talk about some technical details or engineering aspects of the telescope, but <clears throat> is it meaningful to say uh, when, that, when such and such uh, galaxy was formed, the ancient dinosaurs were walking on the Earth? Or is it that the galaxy, whatever it was, didn't form here until the light from that event got here. Right. This is the whole problem of what is now when you're when you're looking right. at these Hubble images. Well, so presumably most of these galaxies that we're seeing from from our perspective from the early universe, we're seeing them in their infancy or adolescence, these very distant galaxies. But that's just how we're seeing them now because after the light has taken all that time to get here, presumably if you could suddenly blink your eyes and be in those galaxies, they would be as mature now as the Milky Way is now. So all of these galaxies— Wait, I, w- I yes. want to follow this through. Okay. And then it, it, continuing your eye blink, if they were looking back at us, they would look back at us and see us as this infant galaxy from a time maybe before there even was an Earth. That's right. That's right. So they would. there may be— uh, uh, beings in some very distant galaxy that are right now having a discussion about these this interesting infant galaxy across the universe that happens to be ours from a long time ago. <laughs> Bill, I don't think that sound effect has ever been so well earned as it is right now because this is this is mind bending stuff. It's so yes. far outside of human experience. I mean, how do you even? How do you try to explain that to people when you're talking about things not just before you were born, before there were humans, before there was an Earth? It's it's very hard to grasp. Well, actually, I don't think it is that hard to grasp. Once you realize this whole time machine aspect, that it's taken time for the light to make that trek 
across space, then I think it, it makes some amount of sense. Now, just because it makes some amount of sense doesn't mean that we can really grasp this in, in our minds. And, and I, I have trouble just grasping the numbers of galaxies that we're seeing. I mean, Hubble, even in a tiny, a small field of view, can see thousands of galaxies. And if you extrapolate that across the whole sky, uh, take a look, for example, at this famous image of the ultra-deep field that Hubble is famous for. Yeah, we're going to want to hear uh, more about that in a minute. It's a sample of galaxies, but, but it just gives you a, a visual image uh, uh, that, that relates to the numbers where we actually believe that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in, in the observable universe. You and say so, believe. We've observed yeah. hundreds well, we've, of— Well, we, we've observed— um, as many as we've been able to, more or less, but from that we can infer that there are more. So that so there are some galaxies that are presumably too faint or distant for us to see right now, and yet that doesn't mean they are not observable. And in fact, uh, uh, there's a future telescope uh, about to be launched next year, the James Webb Space Telescope, that should be able to pick up some of the most distant galaxies that even Hubble can't see because those galaxies are very faint and their light, the light is tra traversing across space and becoming redshifted as it travels through this expanding space, so much so that it, the light is peaking up in infrared wavelengths of light that Hubble um, can't pick up. So we, we know there's going to be more galaxies observed that we have not yet been able to observe, but we can we can estimate how many galaxies that there are observable, but there are more galaxies that we'll never be able to observe because they've already expanded with this expansion of space beyond the time horizon uh, for the light to ever get to us. So that's another one. You should play that weird noise again. That's one, <laughs> another one of those uh, strange truths. <laughs> so these, these are galaxies that are beyond the visible edge of the universe, yeah. and we're never going to see them, even though they're presumably out there somewhere. That's right. So does that bother you that maybe the evidence we would need to make some important discovery about, let's say, for example, dark matter, dark energy, <clears throat> whatever's causing the acceleration of the expanding universe, that evidence is gone. And that just no, is frustrating. No, I don't think the evidence is gone because I think we've got plenty to work with. All right. All right. <laughs> I have to tell the, the listeners who can't actually see Jennifer Wiseman that she does not look the least bit bothered. She actually looks quite content about this. <laughs> so speaking of listeners who might be listening. Let's, let's listen to some listeners who are listening and yes. see if they have questions to be questioning. Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. 
With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. Uh, where are you calling from? Are you out there, Jonathan? Uh, wait, uh, Justin, Justin. Justin, is that you? Hello. Hello, Justin. Yeah. Hey there. I'm actually calling from Jacksonville, Florida. But you have a question. <laughs> I do. Actually, I have uh, one question that's kind of not related to the other. Um, so I wanted to know, what is the furthest object that the Hubble telescope has actually seen? And the second question is um, not really about the Hubble telescope, but it's more about the Hubble constant. Um, if the galaxy and all these, everything continues to expand, does that mean that the items within the galaxy are going to lose gravity because it's not going to have as much pull? Okay, uh, let's, 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 so let's, let's, let's break them apart. Sure. So what's the current record? So we um, look at these very faint galaxies that are very distant. It's not always simple to, to gauge what their distances are. But uh, we use different kinds of methods to find out how far they are based on their color or based on... Uh, Is there anything to uh, uh, photographing it in February and then photographing it six months later in October? <laughs> oh, you mean parallax? <laughs> oh, parallax. Well, parallax works for nearby stars things. And, and things relatively nearby, but isn't very helpful for very distant things. We sometimes too, even... too far away. Yeah, we can even kind of look at uh, occasionally if one of these distant galaxies has a a star that explodes, a supernova, we, we, can, we know the brightnesses of some of those types of supernovae, and then we can measure how bright that galaxy appears in which that supernova showed up, at their, or how, how the bright that supernova candle. appears. Right. Exactly. How, how bright does that supernova appear? And then we gauge the distance. But t- we're, uh, the, the answer to your question is um, we use, scientists use a measure called redshift, Right. Um, you, you mentioned that before. Maybe you can sort yeah. of explain quickly sort of how a redshift works. Um, the the, the redshift basically is um, how much the light appears to be shifted toward the infrared because that light is passing through expanding space and losing energy in, in a sense as it, as it traverses space. Let me just get to the bottom line here. We're seeing galaxies, we, we think more in terms of light years and time than in terms of of miles and kilometers because it, it kind of gets meaningless at, at a point. So let me put it this way. For a universe that is about 13.8 billion years old, we're seeing back to about galaxies at about 13.4 uh, billion light years away. Uh, that would be probably the, the distance records that we're, that we're getting. So what is it? That's, that's like yeah. 97, 98% of the way back to the time of the Big Bang. It's, it's, yeah. Astonishing. So Pretty how do you tell that it's not all the way back to the Big Bang? Well, for one thing, uh, we know our limits. We know our limitations. So we know that Hubble cannot see galaxies that are redshifted beyond the wavelength range that Hubble can see into the infrared part of the spectrum. And then also uh, we we know that um, it takes some time from the beginning of the universe for galaxies to to be able to form, and so uh, that's one of the, the 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 hopes of the new James Webb Space Telescope being launched next year is that it can 
carry on kind of beyond what Hubble can see to see what we call proto-galaxies, the first kind of collect rough collections of stars and gas that are coming together to form galaxies so we can answer these questions a little bit better. But at, at some point, you get to the point where there aren't um, there isn't enough material to to have what we might call a galaxy. We're really interested to know when the first stars turn on from the first gas, and the first gas has to form when the universe has cooled off enough from its beginning to enable atoms to kind of exist and coalesce due to gravity. So there's several stages of the process that happen to have to happen before you get what we might call a a, a galaxy or a proto-galaxy, and that takes at least you know, a couple hundred million years. So you're, um, you're, you're yeah. in search of the first light in the universe, in a sense, or the first star, the first starlight. The first starlight. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, now, now, you know, we could correlate this with something called the cosmic microwave background radiation, Huge which is fan. exactly. Huge fan. So this is something that that Hubble is not used for, but other telescopes are tuned to see some of the leftover radiation from from almost the very beginning of the universe, the first time radiation could kind of escape from from the beginning conditions of the universe. And that... So we're really going through the very, very early history of the universe now. So we now are, what yes. is... Tell us, uh, if I understand your question, Justin, tell us about the Hubble constant. Oh, yeah, the second part of the question. Well, yeah, I, and I, was just, I, I wasn't sure if I understood it correctly, but I know as far as the Hubble constant, um, everything's expanding at a certain rate. Correct. Well, it's expanding at a certain rate, uh, measured to be something on the order of 72 kilometers per, per uh, second per megaparsec, although that number varies. Or is it, or is it 68? Depending <laughs> on what what we're measuring it with, and, and this changes a lot, so I, I tremble to say a number exactly on the air But I think here. the key point is that the universe is expanding. It has been expanding. Yes. It's continuing to expand. I think that's kind of the, well, at the core right. of your question, right? And, and the, 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 the Hubble constant is basically measuring how fast the universe seems to be expanding right now. Um, but the universe, apparently, the expansion rate has varied over time. And so it's a very interesting, as we look back, through, at these distant galaxies and measure their distances and um, their what appears to be a, a radial velocity for these galaxies, although what's really happening is these galaxies are caught up in space, and it's space itself that's expanding. But measuring those numbers, we can kind of <laughs> create a cosmic history of how fast the universe has expanded over at different epochs of time. And it's, it's very just, interesting. Come on, we're yeah. talking about <laughs> yeah. space itself is expanding, which is stretching light waves, so they appear uh, in the below red, the infrared, instead of the red. And we're talking like it's just a day at the office. This okay. is amazing. Uh, and these okay. discoveries okay. So were enabled by Hubble. Okay, right? so let's, well, so, and so, other telescopes. Well, okay, other so, telescopes. so let's, so let's sort of yeah. put these pieces together. So yeah. we have a we have a universe that's expanding. The expansion of the universe right now seems to be speeding up. Now, if that keeps going. Um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, uh, what Justin's asking here is, you know, is is the stretching of space eventually going to stretch galaxies apart and planets apart and us apart? Uh, you know, are we all going to kind of be a part of this cosmic expansion? Um, that's a that's a, a terrific question. It's yeah, it, that's, that's what I was asking. It Sorry. is. Um, some, a question that I have, actually, so I don't really know the answer to it precisely, but I do know that at least from our experiential lives, 
um, gravity on smaller scales kind of dominates this this whole. So when you're effect, near a yes. star, yes, like as we are. Uh, this expanding effect is minimized or hard to detect. Yeah, it's hard to detect because the uh, the the kind of gravitational dominance of things on on this on, on some scales is is something that um, experientially is is more prevalent than this long 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 term tendency of space itself to expand. So. Um, the so as, as the old joke goes, this, Brooklyn yeah. is not expanding. <laughs> Something like that, right? <laughs> right. So thank you, Justin. Yes. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Great, great well, pair of questions there. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Is Chris? Hi. Chris, are you out there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, Chris, I believe you have a question that will build nicely on what we were just talking about. What's your question? Yes. Yeah, so uh, my first question is: Once the James Webb Telescope launches, is the team that's running the Hubble? Uh, space telescope, telescope is it, are they going to move on to the James Webb, or is it going to be a completely new team? And then, and then also, will the Hubble still be running at like a full capacity, like like a, has its own full team still? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we are very excited that the the Webb telescope will launch uh, sometime in 2021. And will it is be, to be hoped, yeah. Yes, um, and it will be scientifically complementary to the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're expecting both um, telescopes to uh, be operating at the same time uh, for some years, hopefully well uh, into and hopefully even through this coming decade. Um, and um, I'm excited because the Hubble Space Telescope is very healthy right now. It's working very well. So we used to say that the James Webb Space Telescope would would follow the Hubble Telescope. And now we say that the James Webb Space Telescope will join the Hubble Space Telescope because they are both um, going to be operating over the next uh, few years. And they are complementary in that Hubble will see ultraviolet light, visible light, and a little bit of what we call in- near-infrared light. And Webb Telescope will see red light and infrared light farther into the infrared spectrum than Hubble can see. And so together, we're going to get this wonderful suite of information uh, all the way from ultraviolet light through visible light well into the infrared. And that will help us to understand much better anything we want to study, whether it's stars or planets or galaxies. But in particular, regions where stars and planets are forming that are often buried in dust or uh, or very, these very distant galaxies we've been discussing. So do you yeah. think James Webb will be as, how to say, as profound as Hubble? Yes. Um, people so, around the world yeah. just accept these images as their own, and isn't this amazing what humans have done and so on? <laughs> well, I think that, that um, Hubble has set a high bar for for missions to follow, but... Um, but I think the Webb telescope is very impressive because it's going to be incredibly sensitive, and it will um, it will, like I say, complement Hubble in the sense that they'll have similar resolutions of sharpness. But Hub, but Webb will be much more sensitive to uh, this infrared light in the distant universe and also in the nearby universe. So. Um, Webb will be giving us some really impressive images and some very, very good scientific information, um, similar in quality, I would say, to Hubble and making profound discoveries that Hubble hasn't made because the capabilities are different. And then the, the ensemble of having both Hubble and Webb together at the same time 
is really going to be powerful. And of course, there are other telescopes that we'll be working in concert with as well. The Chandra X-ray Observatory is still operating, and there are other space telescopes and other phenomenal telescopes on the ground that have their own unique capabilities. And so really, I think of all these telescopes as like a symphony orchestra where you have different instruments uh, joining in and the conductor is using all the different contributions to get a beautiful piece of music. Well, astronomers use some data from telescopes on the ground, like the ALMA radio array in South America and Hubble and soon to be James Webb. And recently, the, the Spitzer Space Telescope that just we just uh, uh, said goodbye uh, to. to sleep, yes. And, uh, and the Chandra X-ray Observatory, other things. We use all this information together to give us uh, much more information about whatever we're studying in space than we could um, on its own. So if the, if the Webb Telescope is seeing further into the, this infrared, it's seeing the longer wavelengths, does that mean it's an even more powerful time machine than Hubble? It's going to look even further back? In that sense, yeah, it will be able to see re- galaxies that are farther away because they are more, and they're more red shifted because of that uh, in the universe. And so, in that sense, um, it will be able to see more distant galaxies. So, th- you know, there's a lot of interest in cosmology, which is basically the study of the universe as a whole, looking at these distant galaxies. But there's a lot of interest also in looking things cl- at things closer to home. And I will say one of the hot topics for the Hubble telescope that we never planned when Hubble was launched decades ago is the study of exoplanets. So it's a whole different type of science area, but it is, it is the study of planets orbiting stars other than our sun. And we didn't even know of these when Hubble was launched. But now, because of a well, lot, we inferred, we figured they were out. We there. imagined, we supposed there were, but we had not detected them. Mm-hmm. And so now the web is going to complement that, and we're going to be able to understand more about the composition of the atmospheres of exoplanets in our own galaxy. So Hubble started out with some trouble. Yeah, where the optics were screwed up. But the whole thing was designed to be serviced by astronauts, and so astronauts were able to service it, get it working, or getting up to spec. And people didn't expect it to last this long, right? How long was it supposed to last? Hubble was launched, um, in a sense, without necessarily a, an end date. So, oh, And Chris, thank you for your call. Thank you, Chris. Oh, yes. No, yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> you, 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 you see where you've taken us? This was awesome. We kind of left Chris hanging. No, um, you perfectly answered it and even answered some other questions that I was thinking about, but I didn't want to ask too many, but that was that was perfect answer. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Stay okay. tuned. Well, thank you for calling in. Stay tuned. Turn it up loud. Um, so, so um, it didn't have an expiration date. It didn't. It, it didn't nominally have an expiration date because the idea, at least at first, was that you would put a telescope up in space and then you could continually service it over and over by sending astronauts up in the space shuttle. And so there wasn't necessarily an expiration date, but more or less early on, just to give it some kind of bookends, there was a thought of about fifteen years. And so Hubble uh, indeed functioned very well for 15 years, but was functioning so well that no one wanted to turn it off. And so we've done a whole series of repeated servicing missions with Hubble over the, the last three decades to keep it functioning, and not only just functioning, but to, ke- to keep it um, uh, top-notch. You know, upgrading it. Upgrading it. So we've put in new and improved scientific instruments time and time again. What instruments yeah. are on it now that weren't on it originally? 
Well, all of them are instruments that were not on originally, but we but some of them were put on in, at some of these intermediate servicing missions. So we've had five servicing missions since Hubble's launch, and this last one, um, the fifth servicing mission, is called Servicing Mission Four. Of course, of course, uh, right? In, 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 true, in true NASA style, it yep. started with zero. <laughs> no, because servicing mission three was divided into two different missions. Um, uh, but so anyway, we we, have, we I think had, they did that with the last Harry Potter movie, also, didn't they? <laughs> uh, maybe so. Um, uh, but anyway, what happened on this last servicing mission was a repair of two of the instruments that were already had already been installed on Hubble and an installation of two brand new instruments. That left the telescope in stronger scientific condition than we've ever had before. So now we have uh, actually three cameras on Hubble, although we're only really using two of them right now, and we have two spectrographs on Hubble. The newer instruments that were installed on this last servicing mission were included the Wide Field Camera 3, which was developed at Goddard Space Flight Center, and it's a panchromatic camera, which means it sees ultraviolet light, visible light, and infrared light. And, and that's, how, that's how you get all those beautiful color images from Hubble. Well, yeah, that's one of the one of the ways we do that. And then the other newer instrument is the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph, which is a very sensitive ultraviolet instrument. One of the unique capabilities of Hubble is its ability to capture ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light doesn't make it through our atmosphere, so you have to have a space telescope to view space in ultraviolet wavelengths, and, and Hubble it, does that well. It does bounce off mirrors, though. Yeah, yeah. So we so we're able to to look at UV radiation in um, multiple ways. We can image it, uh, but we can also use the spectrograph to spread out this radiation into its constituent frequencies, and that gives us a lot of detailed information about the types of atoms and molecules that are making up uh, interstellar clouds, intergalactic medium, even the the atmospheres of exoplanets. And so uh, these instruments have enabled Hubble to uh, do great cutting-edge science, things we hadn't thought of before. I, I'm so—let me just put, add a personal note to this. because I'm, I'm really thrilled every time we get a result, a spectrographic result. I mean, people love the beautiful pictures from Hubble, and I do too. But some of the strongest science comes from the spectroscopy, which is taking the light, spreading it out into its constituent wavelengths, and then understanding the composition of whatever it is you're looking at, whether it's a planet or or a star, or a galaxy, or the the stuff between Gas. stars and galaxies. Yeah, I sometimes think about this as like yeah. it's like fingerprinting the universe. You're looking exactly. for patterns. So one of my favorite instruments on Hubble is called STIS, the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph, and this is an older instrument that got repaired on this last servicing mission. And it wasn't altogether clear that we were going to get to get that done because we had so many things we wanted to get done on the servicing mission. And but it did get done, and now we are doing science with that repaired instrument that we would never have dreamed of before. For example, we've used the STIS instrument now uh, to detect the uh, water vapor around Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter. And of course, we a lot of people believe that for good reason that there's a water ocean under the icy crust of Europa. But how to study that water is challenging. We now believe, based on these Hubble observations, that there may be episodic plumes of water vapor escaping from the ice of Europa, 
And that has been detected using this STIS instrument that was repaired by astronauts on the last servicing mission. So it all comes together where you have astronauts, the astronaut program uh, doing things that enable the science that we want to do and and having a facility like Hubble enables us to make discoveries and detections that we we didn't imagine doing when it was first uh, launched. Okay, so I've got to ask, yeah. how much longer can Hubble keep going like this? Well, we're continually monitoring Hubble's health because basically NASA's position that is that as long as Hubble is being scientifically productive – we will keep supporting it. And so we want Hubble to keep operating as long as possible. Now, the space shuttle is not flying anymore right now because NASA is developing a more advanced space transportation system now and focusing on the, the Artemis program back to the moon and, and Mars. So right at this moment, we don't have a way of, of actually servicing the Hubble Space Telescope we are projecting, however, that because Hubble's in such a good technical condition right now that we should have Hubble uh, well into and hopefully throughout this decade that we've just begun. Science Rules will be right back. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You're listening to Science Rules. So we got we have another call. I believe we have Jeff. Hey, how you doing? You are there. Jeff, where is there? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Silver Spring, Maryland. Ah, uh, right to, down the road from Greenbelt. I used to live in Chevy Chase. Yeah. I used to oh, get my hair cut in, in, spring, in Silver Spring. There's a subway stop <laughs> there. But you have a question. Yeah, so, you know, the images from the Hubble make it kind of very easy to think of like large parts of the universe, you know, galaxies and things as being very dynamic. And I was wondering if we should be thinking about things like the cosmic microwave background in that same sort of like dynamic mindset, or if it's something that's much more static. Oh, well, that's a very good question. A, what, a, <clears throat> what a huge question. That's cool. Sure. So the, the cosmic microwave background radiation is kind of a, a an imprint from the, the first... Uh, uh, time in the early universe when radiation could kind of escape and flow, uh, flow freely, basically, and right, so, so it really is a snapshot. It really is kind of like from a moment. Well, in a sense, but it's filling all the space around us, and 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 the fact is that since the universe has been expanding, that that radiation has what we call cooled um, because it's in this kind of expanding space, and that's why at this point the only way to see it is through special kinds of detectors that can see things very faint and very cold. Wait, so there's a temperature yeah. of space? Well, there is. Um, there is a temperature of, uh, of space, and this background radiation is, is something like, uh, you know, less than three Kelvin degrees. So it's really, really cold, but it's not zero. And in fact, 
we can look around with microwave background uh, uh, detectors, special telescopes, not the Hubble, but other telescopes, and map out, you know, you, you see this radiation in any direction you look, but you can kind of see that there's tiny variations in this ultra-cold temperature of this radiation. And when you map out and, and, and calculate the size scales of these different patches of tiny temperature variations, it tells us something about what was going on even back then, that it, there were some inhomogeneities in this kind of temperature distribution. I mean, so, so yeah. like some lumpiness. There was some unevenness in the universe. Well, in, in the temperature scale. Mm-hmm. And that led to what you might call lumpiness or a distribution in the subsequent material that, that, that formed in the early universe. So you know you've got, you've got energy, radiation, and then you've got matter forming as the universe cooled. And that matter formed uh, um, in uh, basically cooler spots, you know, spots where matter could more easily gravitationally coalesce. So we're, we're learning something about the subsequent dynamics of the early unit, of the radiation from the early unit, the energy that basically gave us the also mass eventually so by Jeff's looking point, at it. Yes. To Jeff's point, have we seen it change in the last 30 years? Have we seen a significant change? Well, no, I, I wouldn't put it that way because we're kind of looking at things again. Um, that are the billions Im- the and imprint, billions of years old. The imprint of the early universe and inferring from that what that predicts about what we see in terms of the distribution of mass now and what we measure for the expansion rate. This is getting back to our earlier conversation about the Hubble constant. What we're actually measuring in the, in the current universe is a, a slightly faster rate of expansion than what you might predict from all these models so and everything who's right? Now. Who's wrong? What's going so, on? <laughs> so uh, this is what we call a delicious dilemma in astrophysics um, that we need to understand why the predictions that we get from measuring or what we measure from the cosmic uh, microwave background radiation relevant to the Hubble constant differs from what we're actually measuring in the local universe about the Hubble constant using different methods, using measurements that include Hubble space so telescope So is this, so. Uh, this mysterious business of dark matter and dark energy? Well, it has to do with all of that. So, so dark matter and dark energy throughout the history of the universe are kind of in a cosmic tug of war. So most of the matter in the universe we think is unseen. We call it dark matter. Most of the stuff in the universe, if you think of matter and energy together, kind of in the same basket, the E equals MC squared basket kind of thing, most of that is is energy that um, that we kind of dub dark energy because we don't know what it is. But so, so all, yeah. all of this stuff is part of the dynamic evolution of the universe that yes. uh, that, that, uh, that Jeff was so asking about. So over time, dark whatever dark energy is is trying to push the universe apart. And whatever dark matter is, is, is it has a gravitational pull, so it's trying to pull things together. And these are kind of in a tug of war, and it appears that in the early universe, the dark matter was, was dominating and kind of slowing down the expansion rate of the universe. And then for the last few billion years, that's kind of turned around, and the expansion rate of the universe has started to accelerate. And so the dark matter is not having as much of a dominant effect as the universe gets more spread out. So so it in space. So th- there is this kind of cosmic tug of war throughout time of this push pull and that's what we're trying to understand better by um 
looking at how galaxies are dis- dis- distributed and trying to understand a little bit about how dark matter is distributed. Okay, so, is- so Jeff, uh, we're, we're giving you uh, the uh, the 13.8 billion year <laughs> dynamic history of the universe. Is that what you were asking about? Is this answering your question? Yeah, it definitely is, because I was, I was curious if the snapshot essentially had changed with what we've looked at, or if it's just the scale is way too large for us to kind of, right, kind of I guess we, understand that. Well, I guess when you're, like uh, Dr. Wiseman, when you're talking about the universe cooling over time, uh, you know, over a you know, 13 plus billion years, uh, you know, the 30 years that Hubble's been up there or, or you know, or even you know, the, the 30 or 40 years that we've been able to measure the cosmic microwave background, that, that's not a whole lot oh, of time right, for things to right. change no, in the universe. No, we're, we're, yeah, we're not, uh, we're not viewing it that way because uh, we're basically looking at the imprint from the early universe that's left over all around us, and that's not changing on that oh, kind but, of but, but Hubble has seen some things change in the time it's been up there. Sure. So there's I mean, maybe not quite on that scale. One of, the, one of the benefits of having had a telescope operational in space for three decades now and maybe a, another, hopefully another decade to come, Here's is that you can look at things over and over again and see if they change. So in our own solar system... We've been looking back at, at things like Jupiter and Saturn for Which over and over again. Which was not in the original plan, right? Looking at planets. Well, actually, I think uh, there were people wanted to use the space telescope for anything we could. So, mm. so I think there was some idea of looking at things in the solar system, but I don't think people realized how much dynamic change they would see. So. Now we actually have a whole formal program called OPAL, which is the Outer Planets Outer Planet Atmospheres Legacy Program. So, um, looking at these planets in our solar system over and over again, because we, we're seeing that the weather changes on these planets. Oh, it's watching storms on Neptune and Uranus. I mean, how cool is that? And what do you know? What we're going to learn from watching those. Nobody knows. That's why we watch them. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. uh, Dr. Weissman, Jennifer, uh, it's uh, something we do uh, every day here at Science Rules that involves uh, weather. Okay. If you know what I'm saying, Corey. Lightning round, yes, Bill. That- <laughs> I sense lightning round where we ask you the fast questions and you give us the fast answers. So, thanks for the call, Jeff. It is time for some sparks to fly. Uh, Jennifer, Dr. Weissman, in your view, what is the least appreciated discovery made with the Hubble Space Telescope? Oh, boy, you want me to answer these fast. This is really... Okay, what's the, really... What's the biggest discovery? I would say... Um, you could yeah. pick top two or three but if you I don't want to... I would say, uh... you know, measuring the expansion rate of the universe, contributing to the, the uh, discovery of the acceleration of the universe, which which ended up uh, with as as a Nobel Prize winning discovery, and also just Hubble's contributions to understanding exoplanets. Hubble was the pioneer in, in a tricky way of understanding ex- atmospheres of exoplanets by looking at them when they pass in front of their parent stars. Hubble actually was the first telescope to confirm the existence of supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies. Has the Hubble affected your your view of the cosmos and our place within it? That's a wonderful question, and, and uh, absolutely. And, and it was very difficult for someone to look at these images of active nebulae where stars are still forming or these deep fields where you can actually see with your eyes 
thousands upon thousands of, of galaxies um, beyond our own Milky Way and not be moved in some kind of way. You know, so people are, are moved in different ways, enamored by the beauty or, or feel a, a strong sense, sometimes of even insignificance in the face of the, of the universe or in different ways. Um, for me, uh, personally, I, I think my, my sense is a sense of awe and wonder. Uh, personally, as a Christian, it, it, it deepens my appreciation for creation, if you'll, put, if you'll have that term, but uh, it kind of enriches my faith, I would say. And other people have different reactions, but I think all of us, no matter what your belief perspective, I hope everyone has a kind of sense of wonder about the universe and our place in it when we look at these these yeah, images. We can understand it at all. Yeah. It's amazing to me. I I think that to me that's actually how I answer the question when people say, "Don't you feel totally insignificant when you think about that we're on one little planet around one little star at the edge of right. a, one galaxy and now we know there's hundreds of billions of galaxies and our lifespans aren't very long and aren't we just a big cosmic accident and all of that but i in my philosophical view so this is you know not a scientific conclusion but a philosophical conclusion i actually think significance can be defined in ways other than are we in the center or are we you know do we have long lifespan there's other ways of defining significance and one of them i think is the ability to kind of look around and learn and contemplate our origins, our past, our future, and and ask these kinds of questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And to me, the ability to have the conversation like we're having right now, based on observations that were taken with technology, instrumentation that was built through the will of human beings who put their, their skills together and got support from the public to do this, that's a kind of significance. Uh- I mean, slightly paraphrase the way Carl Sagan put it, but you know, this is this place uh, here on Earth where where we are. This is the only part of the universe that we know of that's aware of itself. I mean, maybe maybe there are other parts, but but we we know that right here, there's one part of the universe that knows that it exists in a universe, which is a kind of remarkable concept. It is. It is remarkable, and and I, um, I've only just kind of recently started to think of the universe as being alive in a sense because I kind of always in my mind separated what's alive from what's not alive. Or what you can see in the distant, distant cosmos. Yeah, but but it turns out that in in this kind of global sense, the universe is alive. Not that every every not that every piece of dust and has a has a sense of of biological life, but it does mean that we, being uh, here in the universe as part of it and and part and parcel of it, the atoms in our bodies created in stars, that we thinking about this uh, are part of uh, of this cosmic sort of life setting. And that to me is is just fascinating, and it's 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 gratifying to me. So I think this sense of gratefulness uh, of being able to think about these things is, I hope, uh, universal when people 
get the time. And, and I wish that more people, there are a lot of people in the world who don't have the luxury well, of this is it. looking As, at these images yeah, and thinking about but, these things. Yeah. But it's more than ever. As the saying goes, if you couldn't pick where you were going to be born on earth, mm-hmm. but you could pick when, this really is the best time. As screwed up as things seem to be, they're less screwed up than ever. More of us have time to ponder our place in the cosmos than ever before in history. Bill, it's the lightning round. Yes, yes. It's alive. <laughs> so, Dr. Weissman, Jennifer, what's the weirdest question anyone has ever asked you about the Hubble Space Telescope? Um, I think people ask me sometimes if if the Hubble has gone to the early universe or visited other galaxies and planets, and that's not necessarily a bad question if if you don't realize that the Hubble Space Telescope doesn't actually traverse through space. It's actually orbiting around the Earth pretty close, but viewing distant space because the, the, the radiation is traveling from great distances to get to us. So in a sense, we're kind of lazy. We're sitting here orbiting the Earth, but receiving radiation that's come from far distances. That's in cool. the universe. So if you could visit any place in the universe, where would you want to go? I've developed a soft spot for a galaxy that's poetically and beautifully named NGC 1309. Oh, boy. Yes. Oh, oh. Yeah. Um, NGC 1309. <laughs> okay, why that one? Because that one, um, no particular reason, actually. I just pulled <laughs> it out of the Hubble archive uh, years ago, it's a beautiful spiral galaxy. Uh, we know if it's had some fairly recent, uh, a fairly recent supernova, which is one of the stars, and it has exploded. But, but it's a beautiful spiral galaxy, and it just looking at it makes me realize how beautiful uh, the universe is. You nice. probably won't get a chance. Do you own a telescope yourself? I do own a telescope. Um, I'm not very good with it. I didn't get my own telescope till I was well into my college years. And well, uh, you don't have a team with you to uh, to help you with the pointing and everything. So that's true. So if you could give the uh, Hubble Space Telescope a name, a nickname, what would or, you call or it? Or do you give it a nickname? <laughs> Hubby. Hubby. Uh, Hubble, Kelly. Hubble. Hubble face. Ed. Edwin. Ed. Maybe we should have a contest for that. Um, well, so I don't, that, that seems dangerous. I don't have a nickname for Hubble, but we kind of think of it informally as the world's eye on the sky because people around the world actually, they recognize the name of the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, it's, it's become well-known because of these dramatic astronaut servicing missions over the years and these dramatic images that we get. And so I think of it as the world's eye on the sky. Eye on the sky is not bad. Everybody, this has been a fantastic discussion about the cosmos, our place within it, as seen by the Hubble Space Telescope. You mean the eye on the sky? The eye on the sky. And our guest today has been Dr. Jennifer Weissman from the Goddard uh, Space Flight Center Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and here in the United States. So thank you very much for being our guest today and enlightening us on the light from the cosmos. And being so lazy that we can just wait for it to come to us. That's marvelous. <laughs> I, I love not having to do the work. Yeah, that's good. So uh, that's why they call you Corey S. Powell. Uh, that's why they call you Bill Nye. That's right. And so remember, <laughs> remember when it comes to the distant, deep space part of our universe, science, science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. 
Be sure to look at my socials, as the kids call them, for when to call into this show. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you may remember that. Give us a call at 201-472-0785-201-472-0785. Science Rules is produced by Claire Rawlinson and Corey S. Powell himself. Our engineer today is once again Casey Halford, who also mixed this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bell and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosero is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher, where science rules. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.